Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hi, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Avi. Hello, hello. Good to see you both. So today we are going to be investigating a mystery that has befuddled first-year anatomy students since the dawn of time. Why are our brains crosswired? So specifically, why does the right side of the brain control the left side of the body and vice versa? So Avi, please help me out. Where do you start with this? I think we have to start with a necessary disclaimer. And that's, you know, anytime on this show that we venture into teleological territory, everything we discuss is theoretical and therefore unprovable. (laughs) That's our our best material, right? Unprovable. (laughs) It's a great place to be. So I really want to begin, though, with some history, of course, and specifically, when was it first noted that the nervous system is structured this way? And as Hannah, as you said, sort of cross-wired. So I'll give you one guess as to who made that first observation. Hannah? I'm, I'm uh, you know, it was definitely not me as a first-year anatomy <laughs> student. Um, statistically, based on prior Avi-led episodes, I am going to guess Hippocrates. I yes. Would it be anyone else? I mean, <laughs> I absolutely cheated to just be very clear. And if Hannah were presenting, maybe it would be Vercal, but uh, here tonight it has to be yeah. Hippocrates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like on this show, if you guess Hippocrates or the Hippocratic authors, you're almost certainly going to be right, and or Vercal. So yes, twenty five hundred years ago, it was observed that, or he observed that a curious pattern emerged in traumatic head injury patients that he was caring for. And what he noticed was that if a patient had a right-sided head injury, and therefore the right side of their brain was injured, and if they developed focal seizures, the seizure, the convulsion, would occur on the left side of the body. And similarly, a left-sided head injury would lead to right-sided focal seizures, uh, which is a really astute observation. All right, so now I'm starting to sweat because I feel like we're about to dive deep into neurology. Um, and I, in particular, feel are like you, we're going <laughs> to, are you feeling nervous? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, the system is nervous. Yes. Um, so I, I, but I do feel like in order for me to understand what we're going to talk about, we're probably gonna have to talk a little bit about the basics. So maybe you can walk us through some of the, I don't know, this episodes are usually 15, 20 minutes, maybe two hours, talk us through the basic structures and functions of the nervous system. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll try to be briefer than that. But let's, you know, let's dive in. So let's focus on the sensory and motor components of the nervous system. And so as a reminder, we're talking about limbed vertebrates in this episode, which of course includes we humans. And so the nervous system has three main functions. First is sensory input, second is integration, and third is motor output. So sensory input is like visual or tactile sensation. Integration is what occurs in the brain and spinal cord. And then motor output leads, you know, like the muscles of our limbs. And so that's, I mean, that that's about as basic as I could possibly be. I feel like I understand the nervous system again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're kind of lumping here, sensory integration and then motor output. Uh, and which of these systems cross the midline? So if you think about the nervous system in terms of pathways that relay sensory or motor information, you know, the visual, tactile, sensory, and motor pathways, they all cross the midline by way of things called decusations, which is the technical term for 
the point when nerve fibers actually make that journey and cross the midline. And these include things like the ascending tactile sensory tracts that cross in the spinal cord, for example, or the optic chiasm, which crosses in the brain. All right. So that's a good reminder that there are these uh, crossings or decusations that occur in the nervous system. But we're obviously going to need to go a little bit further than that. We got to we need to hear a little bit of an explanation for why they occur. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, I think we suspect there's going to be some teleology involved. So hang on to your hats. You would suspect correct. <laughs> but, but before we get into a possible explanation for why the tracks of the central nervous system cross the midline, we need to again go back to some medical history. And in particular, have either of you heard of Ramon E. Cajal? This is a classic. I know the name, but I don't know anything about him. Yeah, I'm picturing some nicely, beautifully annotated pictures in a textbook <laughs> of pretty neurons that I didn't quite understand. Yeah. So this Cajal. is going to relate to the nervous system? That's jockey. Yeah. So Cajal was a really, he was a really interesting person. And so as a pathologist and neuroanatomist, he made just so many foundational histological observations about the structure and function of the central nervous system. And he actually shared the 1906 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine with none other than Camilo Golgi. And so you may recall the interstitial cells of Cajal, which he discovered around neurons in the intestine. Uh, but he also made detailed anatomic drawings of the central nervous system. And he showed the arborization of nerves in particular, really just beautifully in so much detail. And of course, he also drew and showed how the neuronal tracts crossed the midline. But in order for him to sort of have a prime place in the story, he has to have done more than just drawn these crossings. So so how, how else does he fit? So not surprisingly, Cajal spent a lot, a lot of time, essentially his whole career, studying the central nervous system and noticing things and mapping lots and lots of detail. And he happened to be studying the optic chiasm, which transmits visual inputs from the eyes to the brain. And way back in 1898, he noticed this curious thing that the right half of the world, or visual field to be more specific, is seen in quotations by the left half of the brain. And the left half of the world is seen by the right half of the brain. And so, you know, this, uh, this observation led to a question why does the opposite side of the brain process a given half of the visual field? Why would it be, why would we be structured that way? And as he said at the time, and I'll quote him, he wrote, one of the most obscure issues in biology is, no doubt, to determine to what extent the organism benefits from the singular phenomenon of the decusation. So he, he said to himself, essentially, wouldn't it have been a simpler setup for each side of the brain to process its own side of the visual field? And so he sort of reasoned that this more complex arrangement that we and our very ancient animal ancestors evolved to have, it must serve a purpose or provide us with some advantage. That was his reasoning, and that's kind of what spurred him to, to come up with the theory. Okay, so we have established the different tracks of the, neuro, uh, of the central nervous system. We have talked about this idea that Cajal had that keeping everything straightforward, literally, would have just been easier, and so there might be an advantage to doing otherwise. But before we get to the advantage of, of crossing over, can you remind us all about which nerves go where in the optic tracts? Yeah, and exactly. I mean, that's what Cajal was studying, and that's that's the part of the anatomy that spurred his theories. And so, first, light passes through 
the rounded cornea and lens of the eye. They're both rounded. And when it passes through these rounded structures, it gets bent and inverted. So both things happen. The light bends and it gets inverted by the time that it gets to the retina. And so light hitting the retina is upside down and backwards. And crossing of the optic tracks actually allows for the image to be reverted to a correct orientation so it can be processed appropriately in the visual cortex, which I think is just so cool. All right. So so just to be clear, the, the crossing of the visual inputs in the optic chiasm, that allows the brain to correctly interpret the, the sort of spatial setup of the of the world that's being seen. That seems important. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. You know, what would the world look like if they didn't cross? Yeah, I mean, we really do need our optic tracks to cross, to accurately perceive the world around us. And so if you took the example of reading the word danger, D-A-N-G-E-R, with D-A-N on the right visual field and G-E-R in the left visual field, if the optic tracks didn't cross, then our brains would actually flip those and read Gerdan. And so pardon the pun, but like this is a visual concept. So we'll have some, you know, graphics in the show notes that demonstrate this so you can see it more clearly. But suffice it to say, because of the way that our curved corneas and lenses flip and invert visual inputs, without this crossing, we'd have a really hard time accurately navigating the world because everything would be upside down and backward. Okay, so I'm kind of girding the idea here. But doesn't so but each side also sends some tracts to both sides of the brain, right? So what's the benefit of having uh, having the retina send some fibers to both visual cortices? That's right. And you know the exactly like you said, the right retina sends tracts to both the right and left visual cortices and vice versa. And this is actually very important to allow for depth perception and so-called stereoscopic vision. And so, you know, we need stereoscopic vision to use fine motor skills, things like uh, tying tiny knots in the operating room or repairing a watch. And so having the retina, each retina send tracks to both sides of the brain gives us that, those, that stereoscopic vision. Okay. So kind of summing up all of what we've said in talking about the visual tracts, Visual input, we know, crosses the optic chiasm, and this gives us two advantages. The first being that we are reverting these upside-down and backward Gerdan images to accurate danger orientation within the brain. So we're reading that correctly. And then the second being what you just said, that we are letting the visual input go to both sides of the brain, which allows us to have stereoscopic vision so that we can, well, so that someone can do microsurgery. So not us. Yeah, that makes sense for vision because vision has corneas and lenses and flipping. But what about the rest of the central nervous system? Why would it make sense for the rest to flip? Yeah, and you know this is this is kind of the crux of Cajal's theory. So he noted the necessity of having visual tracks cross, and then he sort of projected that onto the rest of the central nervous system. So his reasoning went like this: if the visual tracks cross, then sensory tracks that sense things like touch, uh, must also cross. So if you think about it, you wouldn't want the right half of the brain handling visual input from the left side of the visual field, but the left half of the brain handling tactile sensory input from the left side of the body, right? And so that would be kind of, um, that'd be a really hard for the brain to have to handle different, you know, the same side of the world in different parts, different halves of the brain. So it's important for all the sensory input for each half of the world to be processed, and integrated by only one side of the brain. So sensory input 
has to cross the midline for that system to work cohesively. And I would encourage you all to watch an incredible video that we will link to the show notes and or in the show notes. It shows a newly sighted girl integrating sight and touch for the first time in her life. It's really very cool. But so back to Cajal. So he he took his theory then to its next logical conclusion was that if sensory input crosses the midline, then motor output must also cross. So he essentially theorized that crossing the midline evolved eons ago in limbed vertebrates to ensure that the right half of the brain and vice versa responds to the left side of the world in every way, visual, tactile, and motor, all three of those components that we talked about. It's, you, as we've mentioned a few times, you gave a disclaimer at the beginning of the show that, that you know this is a theoretical, theological explanation, not provable. But is this theory that was proposed, you know, over a hundred years ago, is it still an, ex- you know, either the accepted theory or an accepted theory for the explanation for this, these crossings? I'll meet your caveat with a caveat by saying that I, you know, as not, not being a evolutionary biologist or neuroanatomist, um, my understanding from, you know, from the reading that I did, you know, when I was learning about this is that it is the most widely accepted explanation for the phenomenon of decusation. And there are some evolutionary biological observations that have been made that support Cajal's theory. And it focuses on the idea that crossing the midline was an evolutionarily advantageous development that occurred in more advanced limbed vertebrates. And so if you look at limbless vertebrates like fish, they perceive a threatening stimulus on the left side of their bodies in their right brain, but they use muscles on the right side of their bodies to move away from that left-sided threat. And this is actually the exact opposite of what more advanced limbed vertebrates do. So like we use the left sides of our bodies to move away from a left-sided threat you know, to push off. And it turns out that the corticospinal motor tracts, which cross the midline and mediate this threat response, are phylogenetically younger, meaning they evolve later. Which supports the idea that crossing evolved as a way to coordinate visual, tactile, and motor input and output in specifically limbed vertebrates. But in the end, I mean, it's it's sort of beautifully unprovable. So who knows? But it's beautiful. Oh my gosh, what an amazing explanation! If true, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's so fascinating. Like that that fish use the same side to okay. Anyway, that is fascinating. Uh, I will be ruminating on that for a while. In the meantime, I'm curious. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to send you on a fishing expedition, but, you know. <laughs> I'm going to be, like, puzzling through that for the next several days as I, like, try and use my hands but get self-conscious about it because I'm so excited by the, the neurons. Anything else that you wanted to share? Is there any ways, any other ways that this intersects with modern medicine? Yeah, I came across some really interesting clinical correlates. And the first is that there are actually several congenital syndromes associated with abnormal or disrupted motor neuron decusation, specifically motor neurons. And these include Klippel File syndrome and X linked Kalman syndrome, neither of which I have seen. Um, have you, either of you? If I saw them, it would just have been on step one. I definitely have not seen them in person. And, you know, they can present with a really fascinating neurological finding called mirror movements, which are unintended involuntary movements on one side of the body that mirror voluntary movements on the opposite side of the body. So if someone went to like catch a baseball with their left hand, a mirror movement would be that their right hand would also move to catch the ball involuntarily. Um, 
which is, I don't so, know. I so feel like the, both would move, not just correct, the... Correct, correct. Um, and so that seems wow. to be the manifestation when the motor neurons are uh, don't cross correctly. But an even more extreme congenital abnormality with motor neuron crossing is seen in the concisely named horizontal gaze palsy and progressive scoliosis syndrome, or HGPS. So these patients have mutations in the robo family of receptors, which bind a protein called SLIT. And SLIT is important in mediating the crossing of motor neuron tracks. So a mutation in the robo receptor leads to a situation where motor neuron tracks don't cross at all. And the right side of the brain controls the right side of the body. And their, vis- their sensory and their visual tracks do cross. And interestingly, they have like normal sensory motor function. Aside from like the clinical features which for which the syndrome is named, they have scoliosis and they have a horizontal gaze palsy, but like apparently every other aspect of their nervous system is pretty normal, which is also or, really fascinating. I mean, it sounds like they're fish, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it sounds like a good description of the way, the way the fish uh, nervous system is set up. But they're still going to like push away from a, yeah, yeah, I guess I hope right. so. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't like cranial nerve six decusate differently? I would have to like, or it decusates later, and so you can have an isolated palsy if you have a lower stroke. I would, I would have to like look this back up. It's been a little while since. It's still, yeah, it's still, but it's it's fascinating that like yeah. it, it that, and I I almost wonder if this is like I don't know if this is an argument against Cajal's theory, but like they really do it just fine. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and it, 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 you know, again, going back to the fish, it's like, do the fish have problems with their system, like getting away from predators because they don't decusate their motor system? You know, it's, it's obviously there may be some uh, physiologist or uh, animal specialist who's evaluating that. And I wonder if that's, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, so the the last clinical point involves embryogenesis, and so it turns out that melanin is crucial for ensuring correct routing of optic tracts during fetal development. So recall that under normal circumstances, each retina sends visual tracts to both sides of the brain, which allows for stereoscopic vision and depth perception. So can either of you think of a type of disorder that might have this process disrupted? Uh, so if patients don't have melanin, uh, there's a problem. So maybe albinism? Correct. Exactly. So albinism is a group of genetic disorders that is characterized by the inability to make melanin, like you said. So the visual tracts of those with albinism only send input to one side of the brain per eye. So left eye to right brain, for you know, for example. So their optic tracts do cross, but they only send visual input to the opposite side of the brain. And so as a result, patients um, with this group of genetic disorders often lack stereoscopic vision and they therefore can have chronic nystagmus, and they can have difficulties with depth perception. All right, so this this has all been really fascinating. I feel like you've taken us through kind of a whirlwind of the uh, the nervous system and all these decusations and all these. I'll be honest, you know, the clinical um, uh, correlates. Some of them I hadn't heard of, but they're all fascinating. Uh, but we got to get to some learning points. So, what do you got for us? Yeah, I, I thought this this topic was so fascinating, and I really enjoyed learning about it. And I love the I love the history, the the like the neurophysiology, the teleology, um, and plus just Cajal's drawings are just so just beautiful. Like he just really was an, an incredible artist in addition to a scientist. So, but my take home points would be that Ramoni Cajal developed a theory for why the central nervous system crosses the midline, and 
visual tracks cross to revert inverted retinal images and allows for depth perception and fine motor skills. And Cajal theorized that tactile sensory and motor tracks must also therefore cross so the brain handles all sensory input and motor output from the same side of the world around us. Thank God for that. All right, well, that was awesome, Avi. And uh, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.